turn to John chapter 2, verse 1. While you're turning, something to think about. What's a miracle? We use that all the time. Or as we joke here in Texan, Texan it's, a, it's a markle. What's a markle? We use that term a lot. Talk about the miracle of spring, the miracle of birth. Well, you know, actually, yes, it's wonderful and miraculous in that sense, but, you know, it's the ordinary course of events. So is it really a miracle? Hmm. Uh, one definition of a miracle that I thought was pretty good is a striking and religiously significant intervention of God in the system of natural causes. That sounds like something put together by a philosopher, and in fact it was. But a striking and religiously significant intervention of God in the system of natural causes. Now we know about interventions. We have reality shows on television about interventions. God does interventions also to get our attention. But notice two things there in that definition. First, the concept of miracles presupposes rather than sets aside the idea that nature is a self-contained system of natural causes. Unless there are regularities, there can be no exceptions to them. I mean, if people rose from the dead all the time, the resurrection wouldn't be any big deal. A miracle also is not a contradiction. I want to be careful about that one. For instance, people will say, well, that contradicts the rules of science. Well, who laid down those rules? But a miracle is not a contradiction. A man walking through a wall would be a miracle. A man both walking and not walking through a wall at the same time and in the same respect is a contradiction. God doesn't do contradictions. Okay? God can perform miracles, but not contradictions. Not because his power is limited, but because contradictions are meaningless. Walking and not walking through a wall at the same time in the same way is ridiculous. It doesn't mean anything, right? Saying the lights are on and off at the same time in the same manner is ridiculous. If I, were, if I ran around asserting things like that, you would look at me like I was losing my mind, and you'd probably be right. So God doesn't do contradictions, but he does do works of power. Now, there are a number of biblical words for miracles, and I think they're kind of instructive also. There's the Hebrew word mopet, which means a wonder, a sign, a portent. There's something that, ooh, that gets your attention. There's pele, which means a wonder, something that's unusual or extraordinary. There's ot, which is a sign, a pledge, or a token. In Greek, there's dynamis, a deed which exhibits the ability to function powerfully, a deed of power, a miracle. There's the Greek word teras, which means something that astounds because of transcendent association, a prodigy, uh, a portent, an omen, a wonder. It's something that overwhelms you um, because it's just incredible. And then we have semeon. A sign or distinguishing mark whereby something is known. A sign, a token, an indication. An event that is an indication or confirmation of intervention by transcendent powers, miracle, a portent. Now, John, by the way, center, uh, builds his gospel around eight Simeon signs. For John, it's not just that miracles are amazing, but it's that they point some, somewhere. They point to who Jesus really is. That's the significance for John. 
Now, the other part of the definition was a religiously significant intervention. How do we determine whether something is a miracle or just an odd occurrence? Uh, for instance, if you're driving home this afternoon and all of a sudden fish start falling out of the sky and hitting your windshield. Odd occurrence, yes. Okay, it has been documented. This does occasionally happen. Small fish especially. They get sucked up by a water spout or a tornado. They can be thrown through the air and land miles away. And you can be driving along in a clear sky and get fish hitting your windshield. Very, very odd, very, very rare, but has been documented. I've got this from the Discovery Channel, so it has to be true. Yeah. <laughs> now, what would be more religiously significant is if a prophet were standing out on our front lawn shouting as you left today, going, Greenville, repent! You guys are sinning. You guys are blowing it with God. God is going to give you a sign. And the sign God's going to give you is you're going to get pelted with fish. And then the fish start falling. Ooh, that would get your attention, right? Even if there was a naturalistic cause, things like that don't happen on cue. Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. What made the walls fall down? Well, ultimately God. Okay, was there a natural cause? Was there an earthquake? I don't know. I wasn't there. And the archaeologists don't seem to be able to agree among themselves. Uh, their first person to excavate Jericho said they had evidence of the walls falling down. Other people contested that back and forth. Well, the Israelites got in somehow, so I don't think the wall stayed up. But, <laughs> but the point is, did it happen with an earthquake? I don't know, but such when do earthquakes respond to people marching around the city seven times and blowing ram, ram's horns? It doesn't happen in advance. We can't even predict earthquakes today, let alone in Joshua's day. So even if there's a natural cause associated, if it's religiously significant timing, that's a miracle. That's a sign. Because it points to something, doesn't it? Now, a pillar of fire on the front lawn as you exit the church today, that would get your attention too. Probably no natural cause for that one. You know, that's what they had in the wilderness. Said, now I'm going to lead you out of Greenville, follow this, you know. Okay, a heavenly GPS, I'll take it. You know, but that, um, that would be a terras, that would be a wonder. Okay? Now, would it not, if, if there were no message associated with it, it'd probably just stay a wonder. You know, wow, I wonder why we have a pillar of fire on the front lawn. But if there were a message as well, you know, then that becomes a sign. Okay. Okay, today we're moving into the section concerning the public ministry of God the Son. And this will take us all the way through to chapter 12 of uh, John's Gospel. It's interesting the switch that happens at that point, just to kind of look ahead a little bit, because in chapters 13 through 17, we have very private ministry between Jesus and the disciples. But in, in 2 through 12, we have a very public ministry. It's like it shifts gears. There's a point there, right before his death, at the, last, at the Last Supper especially, where Jesus shifts gears and just pours himself into the, the apostles as much as he can, knowing that his time is short. So, last week we looked at Jesus' calling of his first disciples, the first five. And this week we're going to look at his first miracle, turning water into wine at the marriage in Canaan. 
says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. On the third day. Um, I understand that to be the third day after leaving Judea and John the Baptist. That makes sense because it's about a two-day travel and possibly the Sabbath was involved there. Um, That would slow them down a day because they wouldn't travel on that. But marriages, uh, actually, interestingly enough, we have a clue as to what day of the week this is, that the marriage occurred because of rabbinical custom. Uh, If it was your first marriage, you got married on a Wednesday. You didn't get married on Sabbath. You didn't get married on a day either side of Sabbath. You know, they had, because you didn't want anything to interfere with the Sabbath. You didn't get married on a holiday, because the holiday, you know, is, is the important thing. So if it was your first marriage, you got married on a Wednesday. If it was your second marriage, if you were a widower or something, you got married on Thursday. So we were reasonably sure then this is a Wednesday. Again, one of those things that won't change anybody's life, but, you know, kind of puts it in context. So, Cana is a little village. Today it's called Kirbet Kana. It's about eight miles from Nazareth. And um, we've seen it mentioned once before. Strangely, it's mentioned almost nowhere else. It's very insignificant. But Nathaniel was from Cana. So he would of the first uh, uh, disciples, he would have been going home in this situation. And Jesus' mother was at the wedding. Seems to have been involved with it to some extent. So perhaps it was a family member, perhaps a close friend. Um, and therefore Jesus and his disciples came. Now, Jesus' presence indicates that he approves of marriage. Now, actually, we shouldn't have to, you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of like a so what. Of course he does. Well, but that isn't actually something that's always been obvious to people because there have always been aesthetics who uh, withdraw from the world and consider that holiness and withdraw from marriage. Paul even talks about people that forbid marrying as being as being a uh, an ungodly response. Uh, and therefore, it's actually significant that though Jesus himself didn't marry, he did approve of it. And he approved the celebration. I think this is probably the more uh, practical thing for us. How many people tend to associate holiness and melancholy? You know, like it's somehow holy to go around with a long face, depressed. You know. Now, i got to admit, you know, from, a, from a, a Christian standpoint, you look at the world, there's a lot that could depress you if you didn't have a firm handle on the fact that God is in control. Um, it would be depressing. Got a book recently about all the things that can be depressing in the world, and I, I got to admit, I had to put it down. I didn't even make it through the introduction before I had to put it down. It was getting to me. I had to be in the right frame of mind, I guess, to read that. But Jesus appreciates rejoicing. Um, it says both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Okay, Now, they could have invited Jesus, but could they have known about the disciples until he showed up? He's got five extra guys with him that he didn't have when he left. You know, so they probably that was probably a bit of a surprise. And there's a little hint there in that the Greek verb translated invited is singular, not plural. Not they were invited. Jesus was invited and along with him, <laughs> his disciples. Okay, So um, it's possible that the extra disciples were what put a strain on the wine supply. They, uh, they may have ran out a little early because they had more people. Uh, the success, the, now, 
something I, 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 I kind of debated on whether to mention this, but since it was not that long ago the Da Vinci Code was popular, I need to mention that some assert that this is Jesus' marriage to Mary Magdalene. Okay. May I, I say as kindly as I know how, that's stupid. Okay. Now the reason why I say that is first and foremost, would you invite the groom to his own wedding? No. So that doesn't, you know, right on the face of it, it makes sense. Secondly, Mary Magdalene is nowhere called Jesus' wife. Um, Paul, in referring to his single status, said in 1 Corinthians 9.5, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles, including the first Pope Peter, <coughs> I'm being facetious with the first Pope thing, uh, or the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Uh, Jesus' brothers were married, the other apostles were married, just not Paul. Okay. Now, if he had been making that point and Jesus were married, it would have been the most natural thing in the world to say, and even the Lord Jesus. But there was no wife. Mary Magdalene does not appear this early in the Gospels. Uh, she, she gets mentioned later. Okay. Uh, in Luke chapter 8 was the earliest reference, and it refers to her as a woman of private means. She had her own business, her own fortune, no husband in the picture here. Okay, uh, She was a woman of private means who supported Jesus. And that's in Luke chapter 8. See, all the hints of a relationship, and these are just hints, come from Gnostic documents that are written hundreds of years later and have a theological axe to grind uh, by exalting Mary in some way uh, to you know, claim that she actually believed like they did. Well, that's easy to do several hundred years after the fact when all the people involved are long gone. And that's, so that's the truth of it, and uh, the whole idea is just rather absurd. There's absolutely no reason to believe that Jesus was ever married to anybody other than the church, as Paul pointed out. So anyway, then the request came. The wine, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. Now, wedding celebrations running out of wine is a social calamity. You would hear about that the rest of your life. You know, you'd probably, you know, they would. There would be a little bit of a scandal. It would also be cause for jesting, and that's everything. Yeah, yeah, great celebration you put on. Ran out of wine halfway through, you know, and that sort of thing. They would take. They would take heat for it. But wedding feast, you've got to realize, this is not our afternoon reception like we have. This, these things go on seven days. Uh, it's just amazing. They would feast for seven days solid. Now, that could put a strain on the budget. Even though this is apparently fairly affluent people, they had servants, etc. But seven days of feasting? Seven days of wine drinking? Hmm. Um, <laughs> that, would, that could get rough. It could be hard on the budget. Wine here, by the way, is not grape juice. Um, the Greek word oinos means a beverage made from fermented, fermented, I'm okay, fermented juice of the grape. There are several Greek words for unfermented grape juice, uh, such as trix, uh, which uh, which means just grape juice, or sweet new wine, glucose. We get our term glucose sugar from that. Now, having said that, though. I would mention that they did water the wine down. 
they, uh, there's a very practical reason why you drank wine in the first century. The water supply was not reliable. It could very likely have been infected and diseased. Okay, So drinking the water was a dangerous thing to do. Kind of like if you go backpacking, you know, you probably have a long water purification tablets, or at least I always did when, t- when Ted and I did that in our youth, uh, because you didn't know what was up the side of the mountain and in, in over the stream, the stream that was bubbling down to you that looked so pure. You had no idea what was uphill from you, and so you wanted to mix in water purification tablets. The same way the alcohol in the wine purified the water. So it was a very practical thing. You wanted to drink wine mixed with the water because that would purify the water. That would make it less likely you were going to get sick from it. Um, they watered it down, according to the Talmud, three parts water, one part wine. So the 75-25 uh, proportion. Now, so I don't think that Jesus is, a, is, a, uh, is necessarily giving an endorsement to your, your local bar or that sort of thing. You know, it's not that kind of situation. But there was a good cultural reason to drink the wine. However, they watered it down. And as a matter of fact, drinking unmixed wine was considered to be somewhat barbaric. Um, that was something the, bar- the barbarians did. So, the thing that Mary does coming to Jesus, uh, you got to realize that the male guests and the female guests would have been separated. Again, not like our culture. You know, you go to Orthodox synagogues still today. They have the women on one side, and the men on another. You know, or sometimes they have the women uh, in in the in the Middle East. They might have the women behind a lattice work in the back, and the men up front. Not saying whether that was good or bad, <laughs> just saying that's the way they did it. So don't get mad at me, ladies. Uh, <laughs> but that was the way they did it. And um, Mary then coming to Jesus and disturbing the male guests, she may have been committing a small breach of etiquette here. Okay, But she came to Jesus and said, they have no wine. This is a serious situation. Not sure the rest of the guests realized that at this point. But she, being involved with it in some way in the preparation, came to Jesus. Now, it was also the case that guests were expected to bring gifts to help defray the cost of the celebration. So it wasn't entirely on the shoulder of the groom to pay for this thing. That you know, it was if you were going to eat a certain amount, then you probably ought to make a donation that would match it. Well, Jesus and his five guys showed up and apparently hadn't made a donation yet. So it's possible that Mary may have just been asking him, hey, can you contribute something? You and your five guys, they're out of wine and they need help. Um, Whatever the case, she didn't tell Jesus what to do. She just informed him of the need. Now what Jesus said to her is interesting. And this is, a lot of ink has been spilled on this one. Then he turns to her and he goes, Woman, what does that have to do with us? Or, very literally, what to me and to you, woman? Okay. His language sounds a little bit on the harsh side, doesn't it? Is this any way to talk to your mother? Ah, you know, it's, it seems funny. Well, the phrase, what to me and to you, does have the 
the effect of distancing the parties. And uh, we've seen this in Judges 11, 2 Samuel 16, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 3, 2 Chronicles 35. It appears over and over again in the Old Testament. And it does put a little distance there. What do we have in common? Kind of a strange response. And it has a, a mild mild reproach to it. And it's like, what have I got to do with that? Okay? Woman, on the other hand, isn't as harsh as it sounds to us. Uh, was Jesus' normal, polite way of speaking to a woman. And uh, we have that in Matthew 15, Luke 13, and, and a couple chapters down the line in John when he talks to the woman at the well. He refers to her, woman. And very much like we would say, madam. Okay, it's not, that was not impolite. However, it wasn't as close as you would expect somebody to talk to his mother. You know, so, you know, he referred to her politely, but like he would any other woman. Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, in his years of growing up, as, as a minor, Jesus was in submission you know, to his parents. And uh, Luke chapter 2, for instance, is real clear on that. Even though he could have gone, hey, I'm God in the flesh, why do I have to obey? You know, he didn't. He had the right attitude, he submitted. But now he's an adult. And as is often the case, it's hard for parents to know when to let go. And Jesus had to establish a little bit of distance between him and Mary. So he's tactfully but firmly asserting his independence here. None of this is as rude as it hits our ear, but on the other hand, it does very firmly say, you know, there's a distance here. And I don't take orders from you. Okay. Now, this has an application if you're Roman Catholic. I've actually seen the reasoning in a uh, Roman Catholic book called True Devotion to Mary. The reasoning was, well, the Bible says uh, children obey your parents. Mary's the mother of God. Therefore, Mary can tell her son what to do and he'll do it. I'm going, I don't think so. I think Jesus would reply nicely, woman, what is that to me and you? There's there's a distance there. He is not taking orders. Um, you know, from Mary, his submission as an adult is is not there. So, and then he goes on to say a very interesting thing. He says, "My hour has not yet come." I think that refers to the prophecy of Daniel nine twenty four through twenty seven that pinpointed the exact day of the Messiah's coming, the triumphal entry. And we've talked about that before. But I think that's in the backdrop of Jesus' thinking here. That he knows when the hour will come. Um, Before the triumphal entry, Jesus repeatedly expressed his time had not yet come. He says it in John here, in John 2, in John 7. Uh, He says it twice, and he says it in John chapter 8. After the triumphal entry, Jesus switched his tone. And three times, in John 12, and uh, John 13, and in John 17, Jesus said, my hour has come. There's a time clock that Jesus was operating according to. Uh, He knew, according to Daniel's prophecy, that after the Messiah was presented, he would be cut off. That's a Hebrew idiom for killed. 
So he knew that his death was coming. Uh, knew it from the prophets. He knew it from his fellowship with his father. He knew what was coming. Keener um, explains that because Jesus' hour, in which John refers to, especially involves the cross, Jesus is saying, in effect, once I begin doing miracles, I begin the road to the cross. And saying, you know, Mary, think about this. Because when that ministry starts, when I start revealing myself as Messiah, it leads only one place. It leads to the cross. Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. John, Jesus lived his life with an awareness of God's timetable and with his destiny. The cross, cross cast a shadow across Jesus' entire life. And he was always, always aware of that. So there's the problem situation. The solution? Jesus changed the water to wine. Sounds so easy to say that. No, he just did it. Yeah. Um... <laughs> But there were a couple of things that went before. One was obedience. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Which is what makes me think the mother was involved in the preparation because otherwise why would the servants have listened to her? Yeah. Uh, now there were six stone water pots that there for Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Now Mary didn't know exactly what Jesus would do. John says later this is the first miracle. She had never seen him do a miracle. But she clearly expected something to happen. She knew he was special. She knew about his virgin birth. And she knew that he was the promised Messiah. So she expected something to happen. Therefore she instructed the servants to do whatever Jesus directed. Obedience is frequently a prerequisite to seeing a miracle of God. I don't mean to say here that God needs anything from us, but oftentimes His miracles do have some element of obedience, some element of stepping out in faith. Now, there were six stone water pots there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. They used stone water pots because they were likely, less likely to become ritually unclean. Um, so those, those were popular. I gather that it was probably quite a process to hollow them out. And Jesus' miracle then, if you have six stone water pots, and they were somewhere around 20 to 30 gallons each. Now check the measures. Um, this does work out to be pretty close uh, to an accurate way to translate it. Um, I don't know about the King James Firkins. I wasn't really sure what a firkin was. But uh, but the gallons works. Uh, my Greek lexicon gave it in terms of uh, liters and do the conversion. And yeah, it's about 20 to 30 gallons. Um, so that's about 120 to 180 gallons of wine that he was going to make. Uh, just to put that in perspective, in perspective, 120 gallons would be 3,840 cups with four ounces of wine mixed with 12 ounces of water. More than enough, I think. Uh, that's quite a few rounds of drinks. I don't think they're going to run out you know, with that supply. Um, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. 
His command was that they be filled. The servants complied so enthusiastically the pots were filled to the brim. You know, they, they didn't hold back at all. Now, filling water pots with water is not too strange. Okay? Yeah, it's a water pot. So, of course, we filled it with water. But the next command would have tested their faith. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Head waiter has been translated chief servant, head steward, chief steward. Uh, the head waiter... The term actually is, is archi-triclinos, and a triclinos was the three couches they put around the edge of a banquet hall, okay? And everybody ate leaning on one shoulder. They didn't set up at tables. So whatever you saw in da Vinci's painting of, about the Last Supper, that's not how they sat there. There was no table. There were no chairs. Um, the archi-triclinos, the guy who's in charge of the banquet, is... a or the waiter, the butler, he is likely a slave or a servant. This is not the same guy who is the master of the feast or the toastmaster. So some translations are an error there. It's a different Greek word, uh, symposiarch. Um, so, but this person was responsible, among other things, for regulating the wine and the food. He was also supposed to see that it didn't run out, okay, by not passing the jug too often, I guess. Well... If he was aware of the shortage, by this time, he's sweating bullets. You know, because he's in trouble. You know, if he messes up the whole wedding feast and ruins, you know, this couple's reputation for the rest of their lives on that, you know, he's in big trouble. Uh, so he's sweating it. And they tell these servants, take some of this water. Now, at that point, at the point they drew it out of the pots, it's still water. It says that it's water. Take this water to, you know. How would you like to, if you were one of the servants, go to the guy in charge of the feast and say, here, taste this wine, see if it's okay, knowing that you've got water in your ladle, okay, or cup or whatever. How would you like to do that? That would be quite a test of faith, wouldn't it? Do I really, really, really trust this Jesus guy? You know, because... One of two things is going to happen. They're going to think you're crazy or they're going to think you're incompetent. Right? Not, nothing good. And, you know, the head waiter is already on the edge because of, because of the wine shortage. But they complied anyway. In faith, they stepped out and did it. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called in the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. The water which had become wine. Some of the translations are, are good there. My favorite is the Amplified Bible, because I think it catches the sense of the Greek perfectly. The water just now turned to wine. When did it turn to wine? Right then, when they offered it to him. Okay. The water, complete Jewish Bible says, it had now turned to wine. Okay. The water now become wine. Three different translations have. The water after become wine. The water that was now wine. The point is that it wasn't wine when the servants filled the water pots. It was still water when they took it to the head waiter. It became wine when they presented it to the head waiter. 
Now, this actually fits a pattern if you think about it. How did Jesus heal people? Guys laying there paralyzed. What did Jesus do? Take up your bed and walk. When did the paralyzed guy find out that he could? When he tried. Until he tried to move, he didn't know that he was healed. He didn't, like, see some flash, feel some warm, fuzzy feeling or something. No. It doesn't say that. It just said, you know, he tried. Oh, hey, I can move. You know, and he goes on his way rejoicing. Um, The same way when Peter walked on water. He had to get out of the boat. You know, bid me, Lord, come to you over the water. And Jesus said, come. Okay, he had a divine command. It wasn't presumptuous, you know. But would Peter have ever walked on water if he had decided to stay nice and safe in the boat? No. You find out when. When you try. You know, when you follow in in obedience and faith to what Jesus said, even if it doesn't make perfect sense to you. Okay? It make perfect sense for a paralyzed guy to try to pick up his bed and walk? Well, it did after he tried, but not before. Did it make sense to take water to the head waiter of the feast? Not before, but when it turned to wine, it made perfect sense. That's the way Jesus works. Uh, It takes a step of faith. It takes sticking your neck out. You never stick your neck out, you won't see a miracle. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, etc. Natural strategy bring, would be to bring in the poor quality wine after all the, the guests' tastes were dulled because they'd been drinking. The head waiter praised the groom's generosity because he thought they had saved the best for last. So Jesus didn't only make wine, he made good wine. You know? <laughs> and he performed this miracle... to meet a need. Yeah. There's always, there's a two-stage thing to Jesus' miracles. I mean, John does call it a sign. says this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed. He performed a miracle to meet a need, but that miracle also points to who Jesus is. It's the same way today. We pray for somebody, and God heals them. Okay? And we've seen that happen. Now, I don't know why it doesn't happen every time. God's sovereign. He has his own plan on that. I don't, I'm not smart enough to understand that. But, you know, we have seen it happen. And when that happens, Jesus did it to meet a need. There's compassion there. But it also points to the fact that we aren't merely sitting here having a religious discussion society. We are involved with the living God who actually moves and does wondrous things. And that points to Jesus Christ being who he says he is. The beginning of his signs, this was. It was Jesus' first miracle. There's um, some non-canonical books that have him performing childhood miracles. Uh, One little cute thing where he made some some clay uh, birds and then turned and then uh, made them alive. And they flew off. There's another darker story in that same that same writing where some kid was making fun of him and he you know he zapped him, killed him. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my, uh, this I have a problem with this 
but fortunately, we don't have to ask ourselves, is this a legitimate thing or not? Because besides being very, very late, hundreds of years after the fact, that text um, also is flat contradicted because uh, John tells us this is the first sign. Jesus hadn't done any miracles up to this point. That isn't something that characterized his childhood. (laughs) Okay. So, this is the first of his signs that he did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. This miracle was a sign. It, again, was an event that's an indication or confirmation of an intervention by transcendent powers, a miracle. And John wants us to focus on the significance. This sign manifested his glory. Remember back in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That miracle manifested his glory. Again, it screams to us, Jesus is who he says he is. The miracle was a signpost. It pointed to Jesus as the God of nature. Think about it. God the Father turns water into wine all the time in agriculture. Every year. Around Fresno, he does a lot of it. There's vineyards all around the town. But Jesus did something along those lines, but a little different. He supernaturally speeded up the process. He just made it happen faster. Now the disciples, it said, believed in him. They already believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but imagine what this did for their faith. They're like, oh my, Andrew, I think we picked the right guy. You know? It strengthened their faith incredibly. Now, some, there's a, a small thing that Bible scholars worry about because John's Gospel is largely very different from the other Gospels in terms of the events that he records. Uh, the other Gospels look so much alike that they call them the synoptics, which means they look alike. Okay, Sin being together or with, an optic, you know, being able to see them. But if you think about it, how many disciples has he picked right now? Five. Okay? And of those five, were any of the other gospel writers? Matthew's not there, you know. Luke wasn't a, wasn't an apostle, but he wasn't there. He, you know, wasn't around until Paul met him. Mark wasn't around yet. So it's just those five guys. The only one who's a gospel writer there is John. So it's not too surprising that John's the only one that records this, because he's the only gospel we have who would have been an eyewitness to this. So that's why this is not recorded. Actually, 35 miracles are recorded in the Gospels. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. Uh, But John wrote that there are many other things which Jesus did. If they were written in detail, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that were written. John 21, 25. So there's a lot more miracles than the ones we've been told about. But these are the ones that God thought was important for us to know about. The 35 that are in the synoptics altogether, and the 8, including the resurrection, that are in, in John's Gospel. So, after this, there was a short stay in Capernaum. Uh, he made his headquarters Capernaum eventually, according to Matthew 4 and Mark 2. The city's name in Hebrew, Kafar Nahum, means village of the prophet Nahum. And uh, it's about 15 miles from Nazareth on the north shore of Galilee. You can visit it today. If you take a, a tour, you'll probably go there. Um, I went there and they proudly uh, showed me this uh, ruin of a house 
then and said, well, there's Peter's house, the Israeli guide said. And I caught her off to one side and I say, Haim Zeha Amet, is that the truth? And I ask her in Hebrew and, and she goes, and she tells me, no, but these people came to see Peter's house and if I don't show them Peter's house, they're going to kill me. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know about the Peter's house part, but you can find Capernaum today. <laughs> So, anyway, uh, and his brothers and his disciples stayed there also. It says, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. It appears that Mary had other children after Jesus. That's the simplest explanation, that he had brothers. Uh, James, Yehuda, and uh, Simon, I believe. And then it says he had and several sisters, but they didn't say which, what their names were. And they stayed there a few days. Uh, a few days probably means something similar to the ten days that it meant in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. It said after a few days, you'd be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we're getting near to Passover, which is where it'll pick up the next time. But applications, then. How do we apply this? Well, Jesus tells us several things about him. Tells us he approves of marriage, though he didn't marry. He approves of celebration. There's nothing holy about being melancholy. Contrary to Roman Catholicism, Jesus does not take orders from Mary or anyone else. And he lived his life with an awareness of God's timetable and his destiny. That tells us those things about our Lord. About miracles, it tells us that obedience is frequently a prerequisite to seeing a miracle of God. That faith motivates us to step out. And it's when we step out in faith that we discover God's power. God has a pattern of not doing it until you step out. That's why they call it faith, I guess. And that though miracles meet needs, they also point to who Jesus is. So so here we have the first sign. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you that you are indeed a God of miracles. We thank you for the time we've seen your miraculous hand move and we know there are more ahead. Lord, I pray that we would always have the faith to be obedient when you tell us to step out of our comfort zone. Lord, thank you that you are God and you are sovereign. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.